Welcome to the latest edition of The Scrum, the podcast about politics from WGBH News. I'm Peter Katzis, a senior editor at WGBH News. I'm usually on the other side of the desk, but I'm filling in today for regular host Adam Riley, who's on assignment. We're recording at the WGBH Satellite Studio in the Boston Public Library. Joining the Scrum is a trio of Statehouse reporters, Gintaudis Dumchus of MassLive.com. Hey, how are you? Lauren Drzinski, who writes Politico's Massachusetts Playbook. How's it going? Good. And Mike Dean, our man on Beacon Hill, our man that being WGBH News. The drill today is we're going to grade our political leadership. Uh, in other words, we're going to issue report cards. Let's start with Massachusetts Senior Senator Elizabeth Warren. Senator Warren has got to be among the nation's most polarizing public figures, right up there with President Trump. Gin, let's start with you. How would you grade Warren? Well, I think I'd give her somewhat of an incomplete, uh, because down there, they're still, they're still battling it out, and she's also, um, it's, it's not clear how much bacon she's bringing home. Um, I think a lot of Democrats are viewing her as someone who has a high national profile, but they still want that Massachusetts pork to come to come in. And they kind of view Ted Kennedy um, as someone who was able to accomplish both national profile and the pork. Um, now, obviously, the, the, the key there is Kennedy was senator at a completely different time, a uh, lot less partisanship, um, and he... Um, when he died, that was kind of the end of an era. Uh, but I would, I would give her an incomplete, uh, one of those things, let's, let's see what happens, uh, let's see where she goes, uh, and um, uh, where, what, what she says next on the shows. Hey, Lauren. I think uh, where she goes is, is kind of the operative question here. Um, we are seeing uh, Elizabeth Warren basically as one of the leading contenders in the presidential considerations uh, when we talk about 2020. So when you look at Elizabeth Warren as a figure in Washington and also as a figure back in Massachusetts, we, there are so many different layers here that, that kind of need to be you know addressed and unpacked. You have her running for re-election in 2018 against likely against uh, 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 state rep Jeff Jeff Deal. Um, And then you also have her kind of angling and posturing to, you know, continue to be the leader of the Democratic Party. And, you know, what is she going to do to kind of bring the party together going forward? Um, She's she's certainly been interesting to watch, especially as she's been coming back to Massachusetts. But, yeah, I think I think it's certainly an incomplete in terms of what she's specifically doing in Massachusetts. Mike, how do you see this? Uh, I think, like uh, Gin said, she is very polarizing, and what you come down to is almost as if uh, teachers were to grade her different sets. Republican teachers would give her an F, Democratic teachers would give her an A. That is kind of where Elizabeth Warren is, especially on the national level. Um, and you know, being a first-term senator, it might be hard for her as uh, much of a liberal icon as she may be portrayed sometimes. It might be difficult for her to you know, get that bacon in, in the budget, especially with uh, the way Congress operates these days. So so what's really going to matter is how well she can sell those accomplishments to voters in Massachusetts. Uh, I don't know too, too many people who are going to vote on for her just because she is a national figure and is anti-Trump and the leader of the opposition or all the other national things that we attribute to her. It's going to be, can she be that as well as a positive benefit to the Commonwealth? And she can or she won't make that case. And I think one of the reasons why you're seeing... Uh, Warren and her office and her people so frequently um, 
uh, praise her for uh, her bill on hearing aids, right? It's, it's, it's a bill that she is a bipartisan bill uh, that would subsidize the cost of hearing aids. Um, and, and that is one specific bipartisan thing that she is pushing that might not necessarily fit her national profile, um, but is very important and very critical to have as a record for her to run on for re-election. Yeah, and and I, I think you hit on something small but important here, that I think it's important for the Democrats to stand for something aside from being opposed to Trump. Um, I, I think, you know, come election time, that's going to be a People are going to be looking for accomplishments, no matter how small. By the way, let me add a final point. Um, uh, David Bernstein, who writes the Dateline DC column, is doubtful that she's going to run for president, just for whatever that's worth. But anyway, let's move on. Listen, does Governor Charlie Baker deserve his 70% statewide approval rating? Lauren, what grade would you give Governor Baker? I will go with my gut and give Charlie Baker a solid B. Um, for someone who is a Republican who did not support the Republican uh, candidate for president, uh, he's he's handled things uh, fairly well in terms of trying to uh, steer the state and kind of uh, govern it through all of the changes that we're seeing federally, especially with health care, um, and you know, still kind of uh, deal with the issues back home. Okay, Mike, how do you see it? Uh, if I want to be pithy, I'd say let's give him a D for Democrat. Because <laughs> he's been, he's been, he's been B. Well, that, that may be too far, but he has been um, working with the Democratic legislature very well. And I think that voters will see that and reward him for that, uh, barring any very difficult budget negotiations or things that break down. Um, Democrats on Beacon Hill now are starting to sniff around taxes, which uh, they haven't really done in a little while. The revenue projections that we have are you know pretty low. People are saying maybe our, our tax revenue system isn't keeping up with with uh, what we should be getting with our economy, maybe that means new taxes or higher taxes. That is too far for Governor Baker, and we will find out that he is, in fact, an R uh, if (laughs) they do press that. Okay. Again, I've got a two-part question for you, but first, give Baker a grade and tell us why. Uh, I would say it's a solid B uh, because, well, for a number of reasons. The 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 re- part of the reason his approval rating is so high is because Democrats who make up a, a good chunk of the electorate uh, are approving of what he's doing or most of what he's doing. Uh, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh was on Jim Browdy's show uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about. He was asked, like, how would you how how do you think the governor's doing? And Marty Walsh said, well, on most issues, he's, he's doing pretty well. He, uh, Mayor Walsh complained about the, tea, uh, the push towards privatization, but that was kind of the one, the, the one thing that, that stood out in Walsh's mind that he didn't like that Baker was doing. Walsh is one of the top Massachusetts Democrats. Uh, and if he can't really bring himself to criticize Baker as harshly as sometimes the, the party uh, apparatus does, then I think that says a lot of, of where Massachusetts Democrats are in terms of how they feel about Charlie Baker. Of course, the mayor needs the governor more than most Democrats do. But let me ask you another question. This is something you brought up last week uh, when, when we were talking, and that's that Trump is more popular among Bay State Republicans than Baker is. Yes, that was something that the there was a Novus Group poll that came out um, on Trump's 100 Days, and this was uh, buried in the uh, crosstabs, I think dug out by Steve Cazella of Mass Inc. Um, and he pointed out that Charlie Baker is doing well among Clinton Democrats. 
um, which is which is kind of funny because Baker, I mean, as we know, he blanked the ballot and had complaints about both candidates. Uh, but again, I think I think that speaks to the fact that that Democrats are okay with Baker. They're not, you know, they're they're not going to rallies holding signs and screaming his name. But they, some Democrats do feel like uh, Baker's doing okay. Lauren, before we move on, do you have any thoughts on the Democrats who are thinking of running against Baker? If I can give them a grade, I would you give can. them a D plus. Uh, the Democrats that are, as we were speaking last week, uh, I actually forgot one of the candidates uh, who has announced that he is running for governor, Bob Massey. Um, it's it's a field of two to four, depending on who you ask, depending on the day. Um, two of whom have announced, uh, which is Jay Gonzalez and Bob Massey. So. There's the plus because they're actually officially running. Uh, and then we also have uh, Seti Warren and uh, uh, Dan Wolf, who are, I think Seti Warren is basically a, a candidate in everything but name, or in name only. He's, he's all but running, right? Um, and then you have Dan Wolf, who's basically said that, you know, he, if he does decide to run, and it's still very much up in the air, but if he does, he won't do it until closer to, to election day because he disagrees with the cost and, you know, way that elections are, are run in this country. Um, they're barely whispering a challenge against, against Governor Baker. And um, they, yes, he does have a high approval rating, but that doesn't mean that there aren't things that you can hit Baker on. Um, and I think that there is a little bit more of an opening for uh, Jay Gonzalez, specifically with, uh, gut, uh, with budget issues on Beacon Hill. Um, so we could potentially see more kind of substantive attacks or criticisms um, of Baker on that front. But, I mean, we're, we're really not hearing all that much from them. How is Attorney General Maura Healy doing? Is she doing as well as she appears to be? I mean, she no flies on her at the moment. I give her a solid A. She is. She has benefited so significantly from Donald Trump going coming uh, into the presidency. Um, obviously, you know, social issues, whatever. Um, but by virtue of her doing her job, she is as the attorney general, as the you know chief. Uh, you know, person to go after uh, misgivings in in that administration. She gets to fulfill aspects of what people want to see in the resistance, you know, the the lefty progressive types. And she also just gets to have a record to run on. Um, She's also, you know, despite still getting some blowback um, over the um, gun control thing that she she cracked down on on last year with the assault weapons ban. Copycat weapons. Right. uh, With the replica assault uh, weapons. Thank you. Um, you know, she's still going around at least once a month, having these town hall meetings around the state, you know, having these conversations with people. Um, it's it's no wonder the Democrats want to see her do something just simply because her profile is kind of checking all of the boxes for a successful high profile Democrat in Massachusetts. Will she run as of today? All we can do is as of today, do you think she'll run for governor. No, I, I absolutely do not think okay. so. I know that there are others who do, um, but this is the same person who, what, two years ago, three years ago, everyone in the political establishment was telling her not to run against uh, Warren Tolman. Um, it's Warren Tolman, right? Yes. yes. I, I always forget the two, between the two Tolmans. There's more than two. Oh, yeah, there's so many Tolmans. Um, everyone was telling her not to challenge him. And she did, and she beat him. Now the establishment is trying to push her into running against Charlie Baker when she doesn't want to. Why should she listen to all these people when she was right in the first place? I'm with you. Gin, what's your take on Mara Healy? 
Uh, I would say she's she's having a pretty good year. I think uh, you know she's taking advantage uh, of the Trump presidency. Uh, you know, you've seen her in Vanity Fair. You've seen her in uh, uh, on all the media. She was uh, hanging out with uh, Lawrence O'Donnell uh, a couple of nights ago. She's with uh, uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden. Um, and Ooh, celebrity mentions. Celebrity. Good for both of you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I I think she's she's kind of she's uh, taking taking control of the moment. Uh, but I, I don't see her um, running for governor because I think she's she's mostly comfortable uh, being an attorney general, being a prosecutor. And, um, you know, I, I think that, I think that's what she's most comfortable in. Um, you know, what what's next for her, I think, is is the question everybody's asking. And there's a, there is an argument to be made of of the longer you're in office. Uh, and, Peter, I think you've made this before. The longer you're in office, especially as attorney general, the the more enemies you make, the more the more of a paper trail you create. Um, and, and I think uh, it's, it's the difference, I think, with her from past uh, attorneys general is um, I think she's a good, good candidate on the campaign trail. She connects with people. Um, she, uh, and she also has this kind of, uh, and I know, I know some of us reporters have talked about this, she also has this kind of ruthlessness too where you um, kind of get the sense that like she will she she will fight for what she feels she needs to, and I think for for progressives and lefties who who want that ruthlessness, especially in the age of trump that 's very appealing do you think the um, I, I, I thought somewhat bogus gun control measure she put forward as an example of that ruthlessness um, I, I think I think she definitely had an aim in terms of no pun intended <laughs> ah. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, uh, I, I, I think that was definitely uh, something that her office thought long and hard about. And I think for, for gun control uh, or people opposed to gun control, they feel they weren't looped in. They be, a lot of them feel they learned through the, a Boston Globe op-ed uh, that she penned. That's how they learned about what she was doing. Um, you, you know, Mike, listening to your colleagues talk here, it dawned on me that you and I have had very few conversations about Laura Healy. I really don't have any idea what you think about her. So why don't you tell me? Well, I'm uh, interested in seeing what her fundraising looks like because uh, it seems as though most of the uh, time she, she signs on to a national lawsuit against the Trump administration, jumps on board one of these big national issues, or even as we saw her do a few weeks ago, ask the legislature for more money in her budget so that she can pursue lawsuits against the Trump administration. Uh, there are corresponding... Uh, emails that go out to campaign finance, I mean, to campaign fundraise for her campaign at the same time. I think she's in a unique position that should she want to get into the governor's race at a later date, she would have the footing to ramp up that fundraising and get to a place that would make her competitive in a way that these other, uh, you know, the other men running don't have uh, that ability to really pour that money in. She can turn on the spigot real easy. Now, of course, what our listeners can't see is Lauren nodding <laughs> vigorously. No, no, I, I, I mean that. You, you, you have a pretty good bead on her. Mike, I never thought of that, and that's a really shrewd and, I would say, Deval Patrick-esque um, sort of quiet, behind-the-scenes, high-minded way to... Uh, rake in the filthy lucre. Well, it's all about the money. Yeah. It, it all comes down to the money. Okay. Um, okay, Mike, you're on the spot right. now. I'm going to ask you to demonstrate your virility. What grades would you give House Speaker Bob DeLeo 
and Senate President Stan Rosenberg. Two of the most virile uh, men on Beacon Hill. Um, I would say <laughs> that uh, in, independently... You can grade them separately or together. Bob DeLeo, well, Bob DeLeo is still uh, the man in charge. I would, you, know, you can't really give him anything but an A for the control that he you know, has over his chamber and his effectiveness of getting his agenda across. Uh, it's a limited agenda, deliberately so. He's an incrementalist. He wants this kind of bill now and then, and he doesn't want to ruffle too many feathers or rock too many boats getting from point A to point B. Uh, I, I think he actually has a long-term vision of smaller incremental progressive goals that the state can kind of shift towards slowly. On the Senate side, they also have long-term goals, but it's a much broader portfolio, and they want a lot of those progressive pieces of legislation moved much more quickly than the House will allow. Um, I think that we're, we're seeing a repeat this session, or we're building up to a repeat this session of the Senate passing a lot of progressive legislation that doesn't even get heard in the, on the House side or on the House floor, just dies in committee somewhere. Um, and that's the way that we saw last session go. Now, Dan Rosenberg, I would say maybe a, a B-minus for what he's doing because uh, he has improved over last session in that those long-term plans are much clearer than they were last year. He has been forming working groups. They're really putting policies together that says the Senate is going to take on housing. The Senate is going to take on early education. The Senate is going to take on, you know, pick a policy area, and they have their experts ready to go and legislation ready to roll. Maybe not this session, maybe not next session, but Rosenberg is really plotting out for um, the next decade of what he thinks the uh, the state should look like. So you give him a high marks for effort. Uh, yeah, and also for this session being an improvement on, on last session. Okay. Lauren, do you agree? What's that smile on your face say? I 100% I agree that uh, DeLeo is... is most most popular, uh, most important, you know, what, what he says goes. Um, another interesting thing in terms of how the Senate is putting forward their priorities and what they're doing and why, um, a lot of the reasons why they are talking about increasing funding for certain things, um, like there was something out last week on early education funding, um, Oh, big! Was yes. this the the House? Uh, I'm sorry, this, the Senate. The, this yeah, the Senate, Senate president. Yeah, yeah. This is another very, one of those task force. Very big deal. Right. Yeah. Another one of those. Yes, kids first. Thank you. Thank you for filling in the blanks on that one. Uh, essentially, they are also hanging that on the uh, ballot question that is coming up in 2018. That would um, the fair share amendment. Uh, if you will, that would increase funding for education and transportation initiatives. And basically, people from Senate leadership are saying that the Senate is staking claim in the issues that they want to fund through the extra revenue from that ballot question, should it pass, so that there will be no question as to what the Senate wants at that point. So it's, it's smart in that sense where, you know, the House is kind of keeping their cards closer to their chest as, as the Houses want to do. Uh, but the Senate is basically saying, this is what we want. We are making it clear. Voters will understand what we want. And also, everyone else on Beacon Hill will also understand what we're going to pursue and why. And this is also accompanied with, you know, deep, thoughtful research, um, you know, studies and PowerPoints and things like that. So, so the facts are definitely on their side. And they kind of they have an endpoint that they are going toward other than just end of session. Ken, do you join this love fest? 
I give them a D. I'll give them a unicameral D. Hat tip to David Bernstein. Um, <laughs> what, what have they done? This is a group of people that's very good at spending money. Um, and, uh, you know, as someone who's who was bad at math uh, in, in school, you know, I sympathize a little bit. You know, you, you have a budget and you uh, decide to spend more than you got. But as a taxpayer, I'm uh, got to say I'm a little frustrated uh, because we are staring down a budget hole um, and they're, still, they're, they're working through next year's budget as well at the same time. Um, I, I, I just don't think the, the either, either chamber has been all that impressive. And, and with, on, the, on the Senate side, you know, I, I, I got to wonder, like, where, where does the, the conveyor belt of uh, dead-on-arrival proposals into the House end? I, I think it comes down to what could be seen as a flaw in the Senate strategy uh, is that I don't think voters make much of a distinction between the House and the Senate uh, unless the Senate wants to make their main message, their main communication point, we are different from the House and here are the reasons why, which I don't think they would ever do. <laughs> uh, they're not going to drill into voters' minds that we are the good guys and the House is where everything goes to die. They can't make that point politically. The Democrats will not allow it, it, that kind of inter-party strife. Uh, So what you end up with is the legislature doesn't do anything. See, what it leaves me wondering is I know that the Senate president is plotting long-term, or thinking long-term. Plotting is not the right word. He's thinking long-term. The House Speaker is keeping an eye on what's going on right now, as Lauren said, playing his cards close to his vest. Senate President. Senate. No, no. Oh, wait, the, oh, the sorry. Senate yeah, President. Yep. Don't confuse me. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the Senate President's thinking long term. The House Speaker is keeping an eye on the short term. What in Blaze's name is everyone else doing up there? To me, it's an argument that they should have a much shorter session. I'd be willing to pay for a shorter session. <laughs> um, I think, in, in general, they'd cause less mischief. But, I mean, what is going on? Now, of course, I'm asking this question just at the time of year when things are about to pick up. But i, I got to say, I, I wonder what in Blaze's name they do up there all the time. And, and I'm happy to revise my D, uh, still a passing grade, uh, you know when when November you're going to go to D plus. D, I, I might I might be generous and give him a D plus. But but you know when when we come to you libertine you. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we get to to November when the formal session is over uh, and and uh, you know we can we can look at their achievements if if there are uh, a good enough number and and I'm happy to revise it. But at this point, I think the legislature has been pretty disappointing. Okay, one more personality based question: If any of you could cite a single office holder. In, in say that he or she is the has the most improved performance, who would it be? I would definitely nominate uh, Congressman Stephen Lynch for most improved. If if you are a progressive Democrat, uh, Stephen Lynch has to be the most improved. He uh, of course has primary competition in um, Brianna Wu, but Stephen Lynch in the Trump era has been a very interesting person to watch. He is a conservative Democrat, uh, you know, moderate on a lot of issues just straight-up conservative on a lot of issues. Uh, He is someone who the president himself invited to the White House to try to maybe sway onto his side for, you know, looking for middle ground on the health care bill. Lynch turned him down, said, I don't want to get involved with Donald Trump. I don't want to get involved in the White House. This is someone who's um, been repeating the kind of party orthodoxy in a way that he never has before, uh, not necessarily to his detriment, but he's just been unified with the rest of his colleagues uh, on, in the Democratic Party. 
So he's been more progressive, I mean, more open to his progressive constituents. I saw him at a, a town hall that he held uh, a couple months ago now where he, he seemed very earnest in listening to what people wanted, how they wanted him to respond to Trump. And we're seeing it in practice that he's, he's not playing the moderate. He's not being swayed. Uh, and, and it looks like we're having a, a, a just as feisty, but perhaps more middle of the line or even to the left tacking uh, Stephen Lynch going into 2018. Okay, so Congressman Lynch is now a pinko. I had never thought of it that way. <laughs> okay, that's it for this edition of the Scrum. I'd like to thank my guests, Gintaldus Dimshus, Lauren Tuzinski, Mike Dean. Our producer today, as always, is Jason Turetsky. I'm Peter Kadzis. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News, 89.7 on the radio and online at wgbhnews.org. Goodbye.